0: Good morning, church. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off last week in the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Ben led off our time last Sunday taking us through the genealogy of Jesus. And that sermon is available on our media platforms if you weren't able to listen to that or watch that uh, last week. Let me encourage you to go back and give that message. listen. It really does set up for us a number of themes that we're going to see recur throughout the gospel of Matthew. So in that sense it it is a foundational sermon. Now in our time together this morning we're going to look at the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus Christ. His birth narrative as presented by Matthew is found in chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. So if you have your copy of God's word I want to ask you to turn to that passage, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And there, just as a a little bit of an outline here, direction that we're headed, the specifics of how Jesus was born in the gospel account of Matthew can be summarized in that Jesus' birth came through apparent scandal, It was brought about by miraculous conception, and it was accompanied by obedient adoption. So those three summarizing statements, I believe, capture what is going on as we progress through uh, these verses this morning. Okay. Now, I do want to ask if you would bow your heads one more time. We're going to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of access into your presence. I ask, Lord, for the next few moments as we open your word that this would be a time in which you visit us. A time in which the distractions that are always around us and perhaps even distractions that we brought in, us, uh, brought in here with us this morning. You would see fit, Lord, to allow us to focus on your word. And to feast upon it this morning as it is food, even for famished souls. Lord, be with all of us as we submit to the word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. All right, we begin, therefore, with this apparent scandal of Jesus' conception. We will see this in verses 18 through 19, and as we start in those verses, we read these words in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Note first the words, in this way. Those words simply clarify for us that Matthew wants to write about how Jesus came into this world. A lot could be said about other aspects of the birth of our Lord. And in fact, there will be some things that are said even in this passage on, for example, why Jesus was born. But at the top of that list, and as a heading for these verses, stands the question of how Jesus was born. Now before we move on from this verse, one other word to draw your attention to is that little word, now. A little word transitions us away from what was previously said about Jesus to what is said about Jesus in these verses. And what was said previously about Jesus, which occupies verses 1 through 17, is what we saw last week, his genealogy. And to sort of review some of the key things in that passage, what we saw there was the biography, if you will, of Jesus. Like other biographies, Matthew traces the lineage of his subject. But different from other biographies, the genealogy presented here has less to do with the facts about one's background and more to do with the theological importance of this person. As such, what Matthew is doing with his presentation of Jesus is connecting the genealogy of Jesus to the outworking of God's plan for this world. We know this because Matthew makes a pretty big to-do about Jesus coming from the line of Abraham and David. Remember that we saw that from last week. And as verse 1 tells us, just right out of the gate, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now both of these followers of God were majorly important figures in the Old Testament. Uh, to them, God made covenants that would become the backbone of the story of the Bible, this plan of God for the world. And just to rehearse those covenants for a few brief moments, to Abraham, God made the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, this was a, a unilateral covenant, meaning the promise was made in one direction. It was from God to Abraham. All right? Abraham didn't initiate the promise to God, But rather, God initiated the promise to Abraham. But the, the covenant was not only unilateral, it was also universal. In other words, those who would enjoy the blessings that God promised to Abraham would be all kinds of people. I mean, whether you were a Jew who descended from Abraham or you were a Gentile, the blessings of God would be enjoyed by you. And the agency through which these blessings would be enjoyed would be through a descendant of Abraham. But the Old Testament narrative takes us beyond Abraham to that other important figure, David. It was to David that God's promise to Abraham was extended and further developed. This promise is called the Davidic Covenant. Promise of this covenant was given to King David who was a descendant of Abraham. And this covenant specified that the one who would be a blessing to all the nations, Allah the Abrahamic covenant would also be a king who would rule over his people in peace and righteousness and justice. And we also learn as the biblical story progresses that the same one who would be this king would also give the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. Those spiritual blessings would be things like the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So to put all this together, God's plan is that one would come from the lineage of Abraham who would fulfill this unilateral, universal covenant, This one would also come from David who would be a king ruling his people by granting them, among other things, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So what Matthew does in verses 1 through 17 is take the readers by the hand, walk them downstream of Jesus' lineage, and point out how Jesus is from the line of both Abraham and David. And by doing that, he is showing that Jesus is qualified to be the one through whom the promises of God are going to be fulfilled. That's Matthew's purpose in verses 1 through 17. And when he wraps that up, he moves on to the birth of Jesus, which is where we're at this morning. We pick up here at verse 18. The scripture says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit Now, from these words we get the timing at which Mary was pregnant with Jesus Matthew says it was when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph this betrothal period in Israelite law and custom was sort of like our practice of engagement in both practices the couple is more serious than friendship in that there's a promise to be married Uh, the couple agrees to be exclusive they are committed to pursue nobody else they are also intending to walk a path as it were toward becoming married but there are a couple of important differences between the Jewish practice of betrothal and our practice of engagement one is to be betrothed to another was legally binding Whereas being engaged to another is not. Uh, furthermore, those who were betrothed to one another had the titles of husband and wife. Uh, whereas, of course, those who were engaged are merely called fiancés. Uh, now, we may ask why are these distinctions important? Well, one reason has to do with us not reading our practices of pre marriage back into this story. Uh, We don't want to read into scripture, a modern practice uh, that's not there in the scripture. But beyond just protecting us from doing that very thing, I say all that because it lays the groundwork for how serious all of this is to Joseph. I mean, the fact that Joseph is betrothed to Mary is a very big deal. Uh, That we can clearly observe by nature of what betrothal represented But to empathize with what Joseph is about to go through in this betrothal period with Mary, we have to turn to verse 19. And we read there, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Notice Joseph is already considered Mary's husband, and to break off the betrothal period is equal to divorce. We need to recognize that. But beyond that fact is the description that God's word gives to this man. What is he called? He's just. He is a a righteous man. This man fears God. He loves God and he loves his neighbor. So we are not dealing here with a person of low moral character. It's quite the opposite. Right here on the pages of God's holy scripture is the word righteous. Let's... Not a title given to a lot of people in the scripture, but Joseph receives that title. And in this context, it's very important that we make the connections as to why he's called righteous. I mean, why would the scripture call him righteous? Consider first that by this point in Matthew's narrative, Joseph had already found out that Mary was pregnant with a child. Verse 18 does not explicitly tell us that Joseph found out about this, but his actions in verse 19 assume that he already knows. And the fact that he already knows Mary is pregnant with a child leads him to the obvious conclusion that he is not the father of this child. So for all he knows, Mary has been unfaithful to him. His righteousness, however, that is the reason he's called righteous, is clear in that in making a decision about what he should do with the knowledge of his wife's apparent scandal, he would not violate his conscience. He would not violate his conscience. Joseph wanted to honor the Lord by doing what was right. And his conscience dictated to him that he could not carry out his marriage with someone who had been unfaithful to him. And two, he could not bring the full force of the law. Down upon her. In the background of Joseph's decision to refrain from marrying Mary is the fact that in that society to continue in the relationship with the betrothed woman who had been unfaithful would have been viewed by the society, as one commentator said, as a tacit admission to his own guilt. In other words, he would be viewed as guilty of sin according to his society. As such, Joseph would not and could not share in Mary's guilt. And I think this shows the righteousness, the justice of Joseph. But furthermore, Joseph's compassion comes into view in that he would not expose Mary to public shame or to hand her over for stoning, both of which were sanctioned by Old Testament law. This did not sit well on his conscience. So by divorcing her, Joseph in effect remains above reproach as one who's both righteous and compassionate at the same time. And though all of that is true, think about the difficulty of this decision for Joseph. I mean, we've all been in situations in life, right, where we had to make a hard decision. Uh, Not because we wanted to be in that situation or because it felt good, but because we had to. And as Christians, this is obviously the case. We walk with Christ. Walking with Christ involves daily decisions of crucifying the flesh and then vivifying our hearts for the Lord. Of saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. And sometimes those decisions have consequences that might be life altering. And that would have been the case for Joseph. And with that decision, Joseph would have experienced all those weighty emotions that come with such a decision. But what happens next, we might say, quieted those emotions for Joseph. God comes to Joseph's rescue. What was to him an apparent scandal now gets revealed to him to be... A miraculous conception. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now that last part right there. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That part right there gives all the information Joseph needed to overturn his previous deliberations. He was going to divorce Mary because he thought she had been unfaithful, but the angel clarified to him, this baby is not the result of a scandal. I'm sure that came as quite a relief to Joseph. But at this point in the story, I also think there's a good teaching point for us to capitalize on. Joseph was making decisions as best as he could with the knowledge that he was given, right? He didn't have the insight that God had on the whole thing. We might say that Joseph was living out the worldview of Deuteronomy 29.29. That verse says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, Joseph was living his life according to what God had revealed to him at that point in his life. And since he didn't have the secret knowledge that God had about the whole thing, all he had to go off was what God revealed. I think we too have experiences like this in the Christian life, don't we? Uh, Maybe not angels showing up in our dreams, giving us um, divine revelation. But certainly God showing up in our lives and interrupting some course of action that we thought with all the information we had was the best and faithful course of action. But there are times in life when we execute that plan, but then God prevents us from going that particular way, right? Or he redirects us to go a different direction. And what we learn from life with God as the shepherd of our lives is that life can only be lived as we move forward. We have to put one faithful foot in front of the other, trusting the Lord, to quote Proverbs 3, with all of our hearts. Leaning not on our own understanding, but acknowledging him. And the promise is that he's going to make our paths straight. I think that's what Joseph is doing. And I think that's how God is operating in Joseph's life you ever been there before yes I know you have in the case of Joseph he's going forward with this particular course of action when that was faithful God interrupted him now remember Joseph's mind was made up verse 19 Joseph it says was resolved he was resolved to divorce her quietly um, resolved is a pretty strong word doesn't allow for a lot of wiggle room uh, he wasn't still pondering it. All right, verse twenty, uh, it says that Joseph was considering. Um, I think that, in isolation, may lead us to believe Joseph was still kind of trying to figure it out, deliberate this in his mind. But taken together with verse nine, we can say verse nineteen. We can say that Joseph was in fact resolved. And then when he, um, well, the text says he went to sleep, which is a miracle. I think probably no, I'm joking. It's not a miracle, but it's pretty amazing that he went to sleep. Knowing what he was going to do, with the weight of that on his heart, he still was able to go to sleep. And as he was sleeping, right, he had this dream. It was not like a normal dream that we might have every once in a while. Um, this was a special revelatory dream. This is God revealing, inspired truth to him. Um, we would call this angel coming to Joseph in a dream not one of God's ordinary providences. Okay? This was extraordinary. Um, it was not usual for this kind of thing to happen. But you know what? The, the most extraordinary thing about this is not that an angel came to Joseph. Uh, that had happened at various times in the Old Testament. But the thing that had never happened before and the thing that is most extraordinary in this narrative is contained in the words, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, the baby in the womb is the product of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is no ordinary conception it is an extraordinary conception through the power of God's spirit and again I wonder what this was like for Joseph I mean in one minute he's committed to divorce Mary slip away without shaming uh, her he was thinking this woman has been unfaithful to me I wish things were different but I have to move forward without her and then in an instant after hearing what the angel said he goes from feelings perhaps of heartache to feelings of relief, and then feelings of shock. My wife is pregnant with the Son of God. Uh, That's going to change Joseph a little bit, don't you think? Um, Joseph's going to have the word of God as a manual for shepherding the life of Jesus. But he's going to come to places like in the Proverbs where it says you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, and that's not going to be applicable to him, right? Uh, The Son of God is uh, perfect, and the fact that he's born from the Holy Spirit means that he doesn't have the seed of man, and therefore does not have a sinful human nature, so that's very significant, but think about this for Joseph, there's like, there's new normal, and then there's New, normal, and this is going to be the latter. This is going to be very new for Joseph. Now, I think we could surmise all that went through Joseph's head and heart at this juncture. We may try and piece through the emotions that he was feeling, but the fact is the text of Scripture really doesn't draw our attention to those kinds of things. What it does do is place before us the uniqueness of how Jesus was conceived. The angel tells Joseph that Mary is pregnant by the miraculous power of the life-giving Holy Spirit. And I think as an appropriate response from us, we shouldn't be surprised by this. It should cause us to worship, but we should not be surprised by this. And, And what I mean by that is that we should read about what the Holy Spirit does here and be like, that's just the Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Spirit does, right? I mean, all over Scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. In Genesis chapter 1, he's brooding over the waters about to bring life and vitality to God's creation. Are you awake? That's creepy right there. In Genesis 6, okay, where God floods the wicked world. The account tells us that God's spirit won't strive with man forever, meaning when God removes his spirit from people, that's equal to the removal of life. In Ezekiel 36, the new birth is pictured as receiving a new heart that is alive to God, which comes through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John six sixty-three, the spirit gives life. Paul in Romans 8, 2 says the Holy Spirit is the spirit who gives life. Life. Now, this is the biblical testimony about the Holy Spirit. He is one who gives life. Where you find the Holy Spirit, then you find life. And it was the Holy Spirit who created life inside Mary's womb. It's a miracle, right? This is this is a, a virgin conception. This is a miracle. Now, of course, people have problem with this in our day, right? Uh, how could a virgin become pregnant? Is a question that people may often ask. Uh, That's an impossibility, right? Well, but it is an impossibility in a world closed off from God. Uh, The late Anne Nicole Gaylor, the co founder of Freedom from Religion Foundation, she said this There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only our natural world. Uh, Mrs. Gaylor would say, No virgin birth, all right? This is called naturalism. It's the view that says all that exists is a result of natural processes and nothing more. There is no God, no supernatural beings, just time and random chance. Uh, From the goo to the zoo to you. All right? I kind of stole that from somebody. Uh, Reworded it some, but you're not impressed. Don't be impressed with that. (laughs) It's just the natural evolution of things so there could be no virgin birth and we can understand why people would come to that conclusion right Um, it's for the same reason that, that you and I before we came to Christ held the convictions that we held and perhaps some of us before we came to Christ we outright denied God's existence but Romans 1 the good book tells us why it is that someone would reject the creator God they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. We're, we're not that complicated as people. The reason why we reject God and what he has established for us to live by is because we want to live a different way. And that was all of us before we came to Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us, right? He changed our minds. and But by the gospel, we won't be saved. So when those scales they they fell off in our lives, it wasn't that difficult to accept a virgin birth, right? Uh, what is a virgin birth? For the God who can create everything from nothing, right? (laughs) Uh, Cause fruit bearing trees to come out of the ground, that's day three. That's pretty miraculous. Or tell a lifeless Lazarus to get out of the grave. I mean, these things are things that we have no problem believing because we believe in a God who's powerful enough to do these things. And indeed, he created life within Mary's womb, and that life is the life of Christ. So the angel testifies to Joseph that the Holy Spirit is responsible for the life of Joseph and Mary's womb. The angel says more, however. Look at verse 21. We read that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Hebrew word here for the name Jesus is Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is the name for God as revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, Some background to people being named in the Bible. Sometimes God's people get names that point back to God. Uh, To give you some examples here, Elijah means Yahweh is my God. Ezekiel means God strengthens. and Jeremiah means God will exalt. These names and others point back to God. But when we come to Jesus... That pattern is not used. What I mean is that the name of Jesus and his description in this context do not point away to God. They point to himself. His name makes much of himself. We can recognize this by, again, establish, establishing that Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus' name points to the one who saves, namely Yahweh, right? Right? But we see something interesting in verse 21. Notice who does the saving. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus does the saving. So I think we have to conclude that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Right? And Matthew, I think, opens up a little window into the person of Jesus really early on here in his gospel to show that, yes, the one that is in Mary's womb is a human. But as it relates to his divine nature, he is eternal son of God. He's not merely a man, but he is God. More on that just in a little bit. Um, On this note though later in Matthew's gospel this note about Jesus forgiving sins Jesus he heals this paralytic And as he heals this man he says your sins are forgiven Now in the gospel of Mark the scribes reaction to this uh, They say uh, you know about the saying about Jesus saying your sins are forgiven Is that they first say God alone has the authority to forgive sins Uh, But here is Jesus forgiving sins. And because Jesus was forgiving the sin of this paralytic, the scribes charged him with blasphemy, right? In other words, the scribes understood clearly what Jesus was claiming by saying, your sins are forgiven. He is claiming to be God. And Jesus, as God, will save his people from their sins. You know, you, you will have conversations, and I'm sure many of you had, Uh, Before with with people who want to say that the scripture does not say that Jesus claimed to be God Nor does the scripture say that Jesus is God And one of the problems with that is that I think in a, a lot of people's thinking They want the scripture to just come out and say that Jesus is God And there are places where that does happen But when Matthew who's writing to a Jewish audience Wants to show that this Jesus is indeed God He's going to connect activities that only God can do with the person of Jesus. In just just a minute, he's actually going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. So that's one of the ways in which Matthew is trying to convince the original audience about who this Jesus is. Yes, he is man, but he is also God. Now, this also draws our attention This whole bit about he will forgive his people of their sins. This draws our attention to the mission of Jesus. His mission is saving from sins. Uh, This would have been significant for a Jewish readership to whom Matthew writes. Uh, They had their hearts set on a Messiah who would come and deliver the Jewish people from political oppression. At that time in their history, Rome had Israel under its thumb. They were taxed by Rome. They were under the jurisdiction of Rome. They were under the dominance of Rome. Uh, Deliverance from this foreign oppression was at a fever pitch by the time Jesus came into this world. And if there ever were an opportune time, at least from the perspective of the Jewish people, for God to deliver his people from political stronghold, it would have been then. But that's not why Jesus came. The first time he came for a more severe problem and that problem is the problem of sin you know I think our our day is really no different the circumstances are certainly different but human opinion about our greatest problems they're, they're all over the place uh, but none of them get at the underlying source of all our problems they all mistake the fruit for the root, the symptoms for the cause. But the Bible diagnoses our greatest problem with divine precision. Uh, the root, the cause of all problems is sin against God. And just a few verses here as a reminder of these things. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. No one is righteous, no, not even one. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Uh, This is the really bad news that must precede the really good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the bad news from which we are saved. Amen? There's only one way out of this. The text says he will save his people from their sins. Jesus solves our greatest problem. And this really tells us why Jesus was born. It gives meaning to Christmas. Of course, every other day as well, but certainly Christmas. The reason why Jesus came to this earth was to save sinners. It would be right to say that the purpose of Bethlehem was Calvary. Matthew 20:28 20, says Jesus did not come into the world to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The purpose of Bethlehem was Calvary. He will save his people from their sins. After the angel speaks to Joseph in a dream, Matthew adds these divinely inspired comments. Look beginning at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's a reference to Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds this, which means God with us. This is the first Old Testament quotation in the book of Matthew. Matthew is obviously already alluded to the Old Testament, but this is the first actual quotation. And it begins a pattern that Matthew follows throughout his gospel account of Jesus. He does this because it's very important for the Jewish readership to see that Jesus fulfills Old Testament revelation. So again, the person and the work of Jesus Christ is not something disconnected from God's Old Testament revelation. On the contrary, Jesus is the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament. And even his birth was prophesied about In fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, the Virgin Mary would conceive and give birth to a son. And the name others will call him by is Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now, I don't think that the name Emmanuel is meant to be a technical name for Jesus. Uh, Jesus will receive his technical name, which will be Jesus. Jesus. Uh, Matthew draws our attention rather to the meaning of the name of Emmanuel, which is God with us. And we've already seen how we can make a good case for the deity of Jesus uh, from what Matthew has already said. But to strengthen that case here, we have an obvious reference to the deity of Christ that he is God with us. Uh, though he became a human, he's always So in the person of Jesus, then, both full humanity and full divinity come together in complete harmony. Jesus is God with us. And uh, the great significance that this has to the larger story of the Bible uh, is that by Jesus being God with us, he's restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Um, You remember, don't you, what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? They were banished from the Garden of Eden. The full enjoyment of unhindered access to God was broken. And while God was with his people in the Old Testament, certainly we read about the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in Jerusalem, there was still always a barrier between God and his people. But the coming of Jesus sets the gears in motion, as it were, that will lead to ultimate, unhindered enjoyment with God. Uh, God is with us in Jesus. And if you are in Christ today, uh, you have this promise that God is with you. Uh, The first chapter of Matthew begins by saying that Jesus is God with us. Note this, the last chapter of Matthew ends with Jesus saying, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so some application, there's not a trial that we are in that Jesus has not promised to take us through. Uh, There's not a sin we're battling that Jesus has not promised to fight with us to crucify. There is not a service to the Lord that Jesus has not promised to strengthen us for. There is not anything in all that God's word calls us to do that the Lord Jesus Christ will not see us through to fulfillment. God with us is a great theological truth, but brothers and sisters, it's also very practical. Very practical. I like uh, the uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, there's this... Um, Part of the Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian, you know, there's this fire, right? That's in the fireplace, and uh, the devil's trying to um, quench the fire. But there's somebody behind that Christian can't see, and he's pouring oil on the fire to keep it going. That's a picture of Jesus. And just the same is true for our lives as well, that though there may be times where we feel like we may be losing there is somebody on the other side winning for us, keeping the flame of our hearts going. Jesus is God with us. It's good theology, also very practical. So with all that we could, uh, with all that, we could say this isn't a normal birth, not your average person in Mary's womb. Joseph has learned that This is, you know, all of this from this dream that he had. But uh, the question is going to be at this point, um, what, what will Joseph do? Will he follow through? Will he take Mary's hand in marriage and name Jesus, Jesus? Well, this leads us to the third aspect of Jesus' birth into this world. He came through obedient adoption. We read beginning at verse 21, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Uh, Joseph fully obeyed here the commands of the Lord. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. He took Mary as his wife and he called his name Jesus. Clearly acting out on his obedience. You know it's interesting that we see nothing about Joseph saying anything. Uh, He just does. Uh, This is why, according to church tradition, Joseph had come to be known as um, quiet Joseph. He's not recorded as speaking. Matter of fact, in all of the Gospels, it's never recorded that he says anything. Uh, This is really interesting because in the birth narratives of the Gospels, we read about Mary speaking, Elizabeth speaking, Zechariah speaking, though he was mute for a little bit, an angel speaking, Herod speaking, the wise men speaking, so on and so forth. But we never read of Joseph speaking. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, maybe it's because Joseph was on the quiet side. I mean, he was a little shy of a guy. Um, perhaps he kind of quietly went about his business. Maybe. But we can't say that for sure because the scripture says nothing about the kind of personality that Joseph was. What we do learn is that Joseph is a man who, when God speaks, he does. What we learn is that when the heavenly commander issues a command, he says, yes, sir. So I think that we're on good grounds to conclude that when the scripture is silent on Joseph's speech, it's because we are to observe his obedience. I think that's what Matthew is doing with the account here, is putting front and center for us a man who faithfully obeyed the Lord. And of course, his obedience looks like this. He takes Mary to be his wife and names the child in her womb Jesus. Now, this act of naming Jesus was really significant. In that day, naming a child was the privilege of a father. By Joseph naming Jesus, he was signifying his adoption of Jesus as a legal son. Joseph, catch this, the text says he is a son of David. He takes Jesus into his lineage, and so Jesus has the legal birthright to the Davidic throne. That's how that happens. That is how Matthew can present to the Israelites, the Jewish people, that Jesus has a legitimacy to the throne. And, of course, it all came about by the obedience of this man, Joseph. But just when we think that Joseph's godliness stops there, the text says in verse 25 that he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Joseph forewent his conjugal right. Uh, He's now, as a married man, completely within the boundaries of God's good design for marriage. But he was, and get this, he was committed to keeping the doctrine of the virgin birth pure. That's why he did what he did, was to keep that doctrine pure. So, of course, no one could come along after Joseph and say, was it really a miraculous birth, or is this just Joseph's son? There's no doubting. And Joseph was committed to keep that teaching pure. So the the portrait that we have of this man is one who is a model for us of godly obedience. He becomes an example of one who used his life to preserve the truthfulness of God's word. He used his life to preserve the scripture. And as a question for all of us, do we use our lives to preserve doctrine? Do we see our life as one that, like it says in Titus 2.10, adorns the doctrine of God our Savior? This birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew uh, is more than just an account of the way in which Jesus was conceived. It's more than just validation that Jesus is from the right lineage through his adoptive father Joseph. What this passage would have done for those original Jewish readers was put the pressure on them to respond to the Savior with obedient faith in the way that Joseph did. Joseph heard the word, he believed it, and then he did it. Elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that through believing, we are saved. We are justified by faith alone. But we also learn in Scripture that such a faith is never alone it works. So though we are saved by faith alone, faith is never alone. It always produces a life of obedience. Not a life of perfect obedience, but a life of obedience. Because we have been born again by the Spirit of God. I think this passage is relevant, applicable. Uh, Now just to make a a side comment here i recognize that when the church gathers on sunday the church gathers to edify the church okay we don't cater our services toward the unbeliever but we recognize there are times when there may be an unbeliever joining us and if that is you today and i don't know because i don't have the eyes of god and the knowledge of god into the hearts of all human beings but if that is you today and you come front and center You face this Jesus. Let me encourage you today to let today be the day of your salvation. There's no guarantee of another day. There's no guarantee of another moment. You have this moment. And God says today is the day of salvation. And the text says he will save his people from their sins. If you would repent and trust in Christ, you will find today that Jesus is a sufficient Savior for you. And if you make that decision today, Let us know because we want to rejoice with you. This is the most important thing that has ever happened in your life. But for those of us who are Christians, we're gathered here today, we see this person, Joseph. We see his obedience. And I think we're inspired by this man, by the life of this man. So while all this is really about the birth of Christ and who Christ is, we get a lot of press about Joseph, and I think that's not by accident. God wants us to see the life of a man who when God spoke, Joseph did. And I think God wants us to be encouraged once again today and challenged once again today to be the kind of people who don't just talk about obeying, but do it. And brothers and sisters, the same Holy Spirit that gave you life when you were first saved is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you now who will make you able to do what it is that he's called you to do. So there's not a single thing that God calls you to do today that you cannot do by the Spirit's power. Amen? Amen. Might we be found faithful to the Lord this week? And we'll see you back together next Sunday by the grace of the Lord. Let's pray.